Hello and welcome to the 136th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday the 29th of October 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We speak with Arnold Schroeder, host of the very interesting new podcast Fight Like an Animal about the science behind his synthesis of behavioural science and political theory. Let's join the discussion. So Arnold, you've recently launched a podcast. You're about 13, I think, episodes in. What's it called and what it's what is it all about? So the podcast is called Fight Like an Animal. And I guess there's two there's sort of like two ways to to justify the basic premise. And one is like in terms of my own experience with politics, and that would be I'm 42 years old. I entered sort of like radical, you know, anarchist e politics when I was a teenager. So I've had a lot of time to grow very weary and disaffected <laughs> with a lot of the things that people are often really like, you know, skeptical of or frustrated by in egalitarian politics in general. And for the longest time, I, I really convinced myself that it wasn't important that hammering out differences in perspective in terms of like core theoretical assumptions about the world or how people behave or whatever kind of wasn't really that important. And I, I very much approached because I think that I, I, I approach any kind of political work from, from the assumption that people are going to have really different perspectives. And from this assumption that, you know, the, the actual work is sort of like reconciling perspectives along lines of overlap and figuring out shared projects and things like that. So, uh, you know, I just for decades, I spent my actual time and energy in, in politics, just organizing. And then in parallel, just as in terms of my own, like intellectual obsessions, I was always reading cognitive science, evolutionary theory, and any huge number of disciplines that, you know, that are like that, that have a sort of like, quote unquote, hard scientific dimension that relates somehow to behavior. And at a certain point, I guess I'm going to say it's, it was like 2017, 2018. I, two things kind of happened simultaneously. One is just that my perceptions of where the climate crisis are at sort of shifted where I, I felt like we could decisively say that climate advocacy of any kind had been a failure. But then also like I just like I found over and over again that I was encountering these situations where it seemed like it actually really did matter that there was that people's conceptual tools and like basic frameworks for approaching any sort of political situation, any organizing or whatever, that the, like some of the really deep assumptions that people were bringing into that really were affecting our ability to organize and communicate and in particular, like kind of decide who should even be making decisions and like what an alliance looks like and what the basis for cooperation really is. And, and so I, I found myself really just like wanting to articulate some of these divergences that I had with a lot of the, like the basic assumptions that I found in movements. And so after some more years of, you know, wandering around grieving and, and sort of like coming off of a very frenetic, frenetic resistance trajectory, I started making this podcast, and so every, you know, every episode, like I feel what I'm what I'm bringing, like the work that I do to justify people listening to me talking alone for like two hours at a time. 
is I read a bunch of, you know, I read a bunch of evolutionary theory or whatever, like I read a bunch of scientific papers and then I try to relate that content to mostly just to my experience of politics, but also, you know, to like stuff other people say about politics too. So I suppose we may do a bit of a dive into some of these papers now that you bring them up. Like, because you've gone through a lot of the papers. I've listened to, I think, all, all your episodes, uh, some of them more than once. So, okay, hit us with some of these papers you think that meaningfully meaningfully explain or critique, either explain your experiences or critique the uh, existing, say, kind of dogma about organizing on the left. From your point of view, it's probably more the anarchist uh, left, I would say. So let's, God knows there's enough bullshit around Marxist fucking organizing. So let, let's uh, let, let, let's jump in. I think an interesting place to start, it's not where I started the podcast, but I did do this four-part series called Nature, Nurture, Death Spiral, where I was talking about some of the ideological conflicts in social sciences as they sort of developed and matured in the 20th century and how I feel that they are playing, that those kind of like rhetorical devices that were used in some of these like very early debates before we really had, I mean, before we really knew, you know, like, like science was definitely not in the place it's in now a hundred years ago. So like before we simply had accumulated a lot of the information that we've accumulated, there was an exceptionally racist camp of social scientists who were using Darwin to, to claim, you know, I mean, we, we still find people articulating variants of this theory today, of course, but, you know, to justify this premise that people who have, well, first of all, that societies with less technological development are somehow inferior, which I'm, I was really unclear that that's like an obvious, that part, that part of the argument was just taken for granted, but I'm, I think it's entirely unclear that's the case. But then, you know, that the reason that these inferior societies existed was because people were like genetically predisposed to to creating less, you know, glorious civilizational achievements. And so th that that camp, Francis Galton and those folks were, you know, super foundational to the eugenics movement, super foundational to uh, like the Nazis did, in fact, read them and were, in fact, influenced by what they said. And, you know, and so, I mean, that created a perception that I think continues to this day, that if you talk about evolution, it must be, it must be like a, you know, you must be like one or two steps away from saying some racist shit. And, and like, you know, what I would say about that, though, is just that, first of all, like, people have invoked all kinds of crazy nonsense to justify their racist perceptions throughout time, you know, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's always a post hoc justification of like a, a perception, like a perceptual bias that they, that they have. But early 20th century social scientists who were more, I don't know, who, who I share, who I would personally share more values with more like egalitarian oriented people fought back against that in a way that, that I think was like, I understand the motivations, but it was very like, I, kind of just like a pure reaction, I would say it wasn't really it wasn't really grounded in any sort of like empirical or theoretical integration at all. And they, you know, so they started claiming that there just absolutely was no human nature, and that in and of itself, I think, 
leads us into very weird places. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, the, the most obvious agreeing with Chomsky is just that if there is no human nature, there's actually really no reason to fight against fascist dystopia. I mean, if, if we are simply the products of socialization and society can tell us to be anything, then, then really what's the problem with society telling us we can't be gay or telling us to work 16 hours in Elon Musk's lithium mines or what the fuck ever. Right. But, <laughs> but, but um, this led to all these weird, I, I would say that these academics painted themselves into some corners that they absolutely did not anticipate. And one of the things that came up, you know, whereas originally these, this school of thought, this like egalitarian social sciences school of thought used phrases like the psychic unity of, of mankind, which I think, you know, minus the gender specific language is very much, I, I think like a very valid perspective, but very quickly they got into this place where in order to sort of demonstrate the infinite plasticity of humanity, like any time that we see a recurrent set of behaviors everywhere people are found, then we can kind of say like, well, it seems like that, that must say something about human nature. And so they got in, they painted themselves into this corner where they had to claim that people were infinitely arbitrarily different between different groups, between different cultural groups. And so anthropology became this enterprise, anthropology in particular, this enterprise of, of claiming kind of like ridiculous differences between people, claiming that people in one culture had no sense of time or people in another culture like kind of literally had no pride, you know, all this stuff that just sounds very counterintuitively not human. And then over time, that sort of same thinking got started getting applied to groups that have different experiences of socialization, but might share essentially kind of one sort of material society, you know, like people like along like ethnic and gender lines and things like that. And so this, I, like, you know, the, the most interesting thing that's happened politically in the United States recently has been the uprisings against police violence starting with George, the murder of George Floyd. And, and I would say that like, that's as good an illustration of any, as any of how this, the, like these notions that we should assume people don't share a perspective at all because they come from different like social groups have had different experiences of socialization. Like it's a great illustration of how that's still really burdening us because we're still having these like insane debates that all rely on that assumption that there's like a, like, you know, over and over again, we have to tell people that there's not a monolithic black political perspective, but the idea that there is, you know, that, that like, if, if like there's some liberal black person saying, don't break windows, stay on the sidewalk, you know, like fighting the police is bad, wh whatever, you know, like I promise the Minneapolis city council is really going to defund the police, even though this looks like a liberal let's study the issue with a committee kind of bullshit thing, you know, like over and over again, we have to say like a black person doesn't speak for all black people, but there, there really is like, there's this, this framework that for, for as much as I, I don't think most people have ever read those, uh, those like early social scientists, they're still like operating under these assumptions that, yeah, that, that groups are infinitely arbitrarily different and that they all kind of like, so that so it, it forces people to not look at the individual psychological variation that exists within a given group of people and how that maps out to like different political orientations perspectives on the world so that would be like one example that's pertinent to today
Yeah, like it, it's interesting. You, you mentioned, say, for example, how, you know, you go back 100 years and the debates very quickly settled into kind of camps. You know, I, I've just been reading recently a, a, a book that's talking a little bit about Edmund Burke, like this asshole Irish <laughs> conservative philosopher. And he was like, in response to Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations was writing up some like economic value theory of his own. And he essentially basically mapped out the fight between like the idea that labor creates value. And he went into the basically like a neoclassical one of where it's like it's all subjective. And it's like you have that that demarcation split like in I don't know what year it was, like 1806 or something. And it's the exact same argument we have today in economic theory between value and, and subjectivity. That it, it seems like that very quickly, like in new academic fields, they settle, particularly when they're more social science, they settle into politically, ideologically useful camps than say, for example, would do in, in a harder science. But like, even when it comes to the hard science, I've been reading a little bit about like some physics stuff about, I don't know, have you ever heard of Bohmian mechanics? I don't think I have. Right. So this is this is kind of wacky, but it's like around the time of like when they were coming up to t- come to terms with the quantum, the quantum stuff. And, you know, the idea of like, you know, the electron goes both ways and, you know, it settles on one way, but only after you observe the effect. And at the same time, there was like this, uh, I think it was de Bruglie or something, but it's since been developed by an American guy called Bohmian. And he was saying like, actually, no, like it doesn't split. It actually goes one way or it goes the other way. And he came up with a like a classical kind of interpretation of what happens. And it didn't really get anywhere. But recently, you can look at it on YouTube. It's goddamn fascinating, right? There's like, you can replicate there's a certain type of oil, like a cheap type of oil, right? And you can heat it up and you can get yourself a cocktail stick, right? And you can pull the cocktail stick up out of the oil and it'll create a tiny little bubble and it'll bounce on top of the oil field. It's too light to to recombine into the actual water, so, huh. but it, it keeps itself as a bubble, like a little a little sphere and it bounces up on time and it replicates at a macro scale quantum <laughs> scale phenomenon okay and so it bounces there and all these different weird effects that quantum effects operate on the macro scale and they they send it they've even got it doing the pilot this where they have the two slits and they send the, the you know the little blob towards where it, it, it would split but very dependent on tiny little differences in the bouncing of the waves, it'll either go one way or it'll go the other way, and it'll replicate the the distribution that you get from the idea of it a collapsing wave function after the observer. And so you can actually see that even when it comes <laughs> to the hard physical science, that there is the bias say between like you know uh, idealism and materialism, and we're getting it right there on the fucking quantum level and like so you know i feel like that when you, do you want to talk about a little bit about what for example we're t- what you were talking about like the 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 what happened with uh, i think margaret mead when she went to samoa and all the craziness that that she decided to come up with no totally i mean yeah i do want to talk about margaret mead but in just like in a more general a broader sense i, I mean i think that I'm super, I think that Chomsky said in his debate with Foucault 
something that I just thought was so genius and I had been thinking for a long time, which is that any conceivable science necessarily reflects some sort of like pre-existing structure in somebody's mind or another, you know, and like to the extent that we have a structure in our mind that maps to, to physical reality in some way, then, then we have a science, you know, and, and, and to the extent that we don't, that's the extent to which we just don't fucking know about the world that we live in. And you know, I, I was first so impressed by that with, with Einstein actually, and how much his physics, which turned out to like really accurately describe certain elements of our world were just like, I mean, it just sounds like some totally internal mental phenomenon. Like I understand he, he definitely like did some reading to get where he got, but when he actually describes his process of like developing the theory of relativity and stuff, but you know, he, he describes these processes of just kind of like conceptualization and visualization that turned that most people wouldn't experience that turned out to be really useful for describing something that actually externally exists. But, you know, there, there's this like really clear sense on which there's this totally like unique subjective element, like a, a pretty much like almost mystical aspect to like some of the processes of visualization that, that he underwent. And I mean, I think even like, even if you look at the math that people employ in various scientific uh, endeavors, you can see these sort of like ideological differences and these like just sort of core perceptual divergences. And the best example I have is I went through this phase where I was maybe like seven, eight years ago, where I was reading a lot of assessments of the vulnerability of fossil fuel infrastructure to different kinds of like attack. And so you have like, you have the guys in America, you have like the defense department guys who are, who are doing like this very like linear, like, you know, like we, like we did vector calculus and this is how we interdict threats, you know? And then you have like, you have some like European scientists who are on this way more like everything is interconnected and all is one trip where they're like, everything is a system comprised of systems and all boundaries are fuzzy. You know, you can actually really see, like you legit see these two totally different worldviews in the math that people are using. Like one that really, dissolves boundaries and one that really reinforces them, which I would say is like a core distinction in how people see the world that maps out to like tons of like really important socio-political differences too. And so, yeah, I mean, so like I totally like for as much as I'm the guy who's like, people should listen to like hard science and, and we should base our radical politics on that. All the critiques about science being laden with values and there being no way to escape like the perceptual sort of like biases that you bring, like all of those things are true. And so, yeah, I mean, like the, the early 20th century social scientists, like, I don't even really know how to, how to like characterize their perceptual biases, except to say that I think that they, they were trying to describe a sort of utopian humanity that almost nobody like in 2020 almost nobody believes in this form of humanity you know but but they were trying to describe a humanity that just like could be any any way like literally had no innate structure whatsoever depending on socialization and so margaret mead was foundational to this enterprise like uh, those those social scientists spent like I mean, more than a decade just arguing this in principle, like in this really general sense without offering any sort of like case study. And Margaret Mead went to Samoa with the specific intention of, of showing some aspect of human behavior 
that was so different from anything anybody encountered in, I don't know, the cultural milieu she was operating in, the West, America, what I'm, you know, whatever, that it would prove that, you know, people can vary infinitely in, in any particular way. And, and, but like, what's so striking is that even though that's kind of a like, that's nice, that's like a, that's a nice idea, or it's at least not like insidious, she ended up totally dehumanizing Samoans. I mean, she ended up making them these like caricatures of people had in their minds this idea of Pacific Islanders as like, it's all kind of like dancing to some flowery music and some like beautiful topless women on some beaches swaying and some grass skirts and some like lovemaking and some huts, you know, like they had this very like tourist brochure sort of like free love idyllic version. And she kind of, she went to Samoa and I don't know. I mean, the nice, the, the sort of like generous speculation is that her informants, which were mostly adolescent girls, just sort of like played a joke on her and just told her a bunch of stuff that isn't true. I think a less generous interpretation would be that she kind of just made some stuff up because she had an agenda, you know, but she, she describes Samoans as lacking hierarchy of any kind, really lacking any kind of sexual jealousy, you know, like lacking, like not be knowing what rape is and lacking a word for it, you know? So subsequent anthropologists were like, well, here's, the sort of elaborate cultural framework in which rape occurs in Samoa. And it is, you know, it's it, it just sort of like all these other things. But I think the thing that the thing that really insulted Samoans the most and the thing that when I the, the, the stuff that when I read it, I'm like, that's terrible and is a is a premise for treating people as less than human is all this stuff she said about Samoans just kind of like. And again, this is like reflecting the tourist brochure perception that people had of the Pacific Islands. But, you know, like they just sort of they're just easygoing about everything. They just don't really care about anything. They have no like passionate convictions and there's nothing they're willing to fight for. And she even says that they don't cling to life very dearly, which is like. I mean, that's like, yeah, like tell tell that to like the people who want to like, you know, build the mine where they're growing their food or whatever. Right. That's like, like, I understand that she, her motivations weren't to like justify genocidal resource extraction or anything like that. But that actually is like, I mean, if that were actually true, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a good thing to say about anybody. Yeah. Like the fact the, the idea that like Samoan, like life are these Islanders, like can't be aggressive. They should watch some goddamn rugby. See these total, you know, bulldozers of men being absolute bastards. <laughs> They're brilliant. But like, you know, it's it's kind of, it's mad. But it does play into the same kind of idea of, of behavioralism. You know, it, it does play into that idea. If we look at, say, the... Now, I'm not an anthropology person with great experience or knowledge, but like, it seems to me that like, you know, while her motivations may have been good to play against that eugenics right-wing kind of anthropological viewpoint, we kind of kind of isolate maybe perhaps her intentions versus her theory's utility. And it would seem to me like for like class reasons, it would seem to be a, a very ideologically useful type of theory, you know, for capitalists, Stalinist states, likewise, that, you know, you can actually just mold your your citizen or your to do what you want and that they have no internal like defined human limits in any sense 
I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and Chomsky, Chomsky simply said the left should have a vested interest in innateness. And I think that's, that's nice and concise and exactly. It's like, yeah, like what are we fighting for? If not some, some humanity that exists outside of like whatever external societal conditions tell us humanity should be. I mean, you know, like there has to be something for there to be something to fight for. <laughs> Quick aside to thank the new patrons, Larry McNeely, Carson and Ryan Mickler. Part two of this conversation has been released as a patron-only episode. So if you like what you hear, maybe you could become a patron. For only $5 a month, you get two free episodes and two live streams every month, access to the Discord server and the right to vote on the next reading group series. And if you want your exclusive commie badge, make sure to sign up before the end of October. Your continued support really does make this show possible. But the change is different from that ever felt before. The music is listening. That that debate, you did an episode on the debate between Chomsky and Foucault. And like, I haven't watched the debate in about, I don't know, like probably seven or eight years. Uh-huh. But I, I find it that if you see on Twitter somebody saying, oh, yeah, like Foucault obviously won that debate, you can nearly identify their politics straight yeah, exactly, on. exactly. <laughs> it's very difficult to watch that video and think that Foucault won. Like, as any kind of a scientist, or even just common sense, it's very, very difficult for Foucault's, for to think that Chomsky wasn't correct in that video. Do you want to Give us a bit of a lowdown for what the general gist was there. Yeah, and I mean, and and I do think that it's also it's a decent illustration of how of how like capitalism and authoritarianism and all these other have actually found a ton of utility in arguments and modes of reasoning that were initially presented by hyper leftist academics or whatever. Because yeah, I mean, like Foucault does this thing that I think is actually, I mean, is really common in authoritarian situations where Chomsky points out these like concretely observable empirical realities, you know, like children acquire language without the kind of explicit instruction and the richness of information and stimulus that would be necessary to learn other equally complex tasks, you know, and then he's like in that just kind of happens spontaneously in a, in a certain developmental window. And then what Foucault ends up doing is like some ver- variation on how do you know what you really know? Do you really know anything? Can we really know anything? Maybe things that appear very, very contrary to what you're observing are actually true. It's all like epistemological argumentation that just sort of creates like open-ended uncertainty. And I think that that's actually like that idea is like that, that reality is a sort of core necessity for any, any authoritarian project, right? There's always, there's like, there's always a necessity to tell people to believe things that don't appear to be true. And it kind of doesn't matter what the content, like the actual, like, false beliefs are it's just the like it's the social psychological process of telling people that they should believe things that that appear contrary to their observations and of of just sort of like inducing this infinite confusion of just being like well what do you really know how do you really know anything 
and more and more his like you know so like chomsky he just he just never answers like chomsky provides this really concise definition of what he thinks human nature is and why he thinks it exists and and foucault doesn't really ever actually address that he just spends all his time critiquing like kind of any sort of certainty anybody can come to about anything in any tradition of knowledge, certainly in the scientific tradition. But then he also, I, I think what's e maybe even more interesting about it is that he also invokes a few lines of argumentation that are exactly what I personally, and I think a lot of other people find so fucking frustrating about politics today, where, you know, like Chomsky is like, here are some concrete projects that I'm working on, you know, like this is my opposition to the Vietnam war and the moral considerations that go into it. And like, sort of like why I do civil disobedience and all this stuff. And, and Foucault is like the guy at the meeting, you know, like, like when you're at the meeting and you're like, maybe we should do this. And people are like, no, let's just get lost in endless critique. Like let's, you know, like, let's like critique ourselves some more and then critique some institutions or whatever. And he he literally says, you know, like, well, I, I don't think that it, I, don't, I don't think that you have the like epistemological foundations to ever like do the things you're talking about doing and know that they're not somehow like like insidious on some level that you haven't analyzed, that you're not somehow like carrying the cultural baggage that you've inherited into your project of trying to build a better world. So let's just sit around and critique universities and, and like look for more inherited baggage. And as much as like, that's, it's always a good thing to do. It's always like a good thing to like examine where you're coming from and what your unconscious biases are. You know, at a certain point, you have to take your imperfect epistemology and do something in the world. And that like that idea that like everything should just be sort of like another round like another session of critique and self-assessment is like, you know, like at this point I have this like crazy physical reaction to that. Cause I've just been in so many, like so many political processes where it seemed like something was going to happen. And then some Foucault-esque argument got made and, and it just shut everything down. <laughs> have you seen, have you seen there's like some document, I think it was the British came up with like in the thirties or the forties for, for, I think it might have been like for how to infiltrate left radical groups in Europe and their have you seen this uh, thing? And they have like yeah. a ten point they have a ten point list of all the things that you should do and how to uh how to mess up a meeting. Right. And it's literally the the list is literally your experience of every meeting you've ever gone to. Yes. You know <laughs> and uh don't want to sound paranoid, but like you know, like I think in 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 the UK, the there was a big sc uh, spying scandal on uh, you know a lot of the radical eco groups and left groups. I think totally. from I think of a thousand groups that they spied on in the UK, three were far right groups, nine hundred and ninety seven were left wing groups. So like the level of of infiltration of groups by like bad actors. Just you know, it makes it makes one panic. There was a guy I was I had an anarchist guy, an Irish anarchist who uh, had on the show maybe about five years ago, and he was saying that this one guy who's kind of like a famous spy that got uncovered by the the Met in the UK that he actually came over to Ireland and stayed on his couch for a few <laughs> for a few weeks. He was obviously doing like recon on some like tiny irish anarchist group i mean tiny like 30 people so it's like you kind of sound like i uh, you know 
sometimes I feel like I'm losing my mind talking about this stuff, but it it, it is like I do think that Foucault critique is is a weaponized critique, and also it's like why of all these great like actual thinkers, why does a guy like Foucault get such limelight? No, totally, especially like because if there if we lived in a world where there are any consequences for being wrong about anything, because I mean his most famous book. I think is probably discipline and punish, which, which lays out this thesis about how the world is going to go, where it's going to involve less and less corporeal punishment and like incarceration and overt physical coercion in favor of a bunch of the, the kinds of things that he critiques, right? Like he's essentially saying like, well, the world is going to become a place where like power essentially exists as a function of the kinds of things that I spend all my time analyzing. So it makes him all the more important. But I mean, 50 years later, whatever it is, 40 years later, I mean, I think that we can definitively say that he was pretty wide of the mark with the like, we're not going to lock people up or torture them or physically coerce them anymore thesis, you know? But yeah, I mean, I think that it's crazy because I've been, so I've been in political processes where I know for a fact there were infiltrators um, you know, where it came out, there's documentary evidence like Standing Rock or whatever. And then I've been in a lot of political processes where there there weren't, or there's certainly very little evidence of it, and it would be surprising. And the fucking thing is that the the frustrating things were the same, right? Like like whether it's an actual infiltrator or whether it's just somebody who is operating in the like the legacy of all these weird ideas that initially got kicked around in academia, and now they're like, the bastard children of the bastard children of the bastard children of those ideas are circulating around political scenes, you know, like one way or the other, the same kind of like the same kind of like pretty disastrous arguments and discussions just happen. Like, you know, whether it's an actual infiltrator or not, but I also do think, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And on some level, if you're willing to look at things sort of abstractly, it's, sort of truly impressive how much th- like these ideas have managed to permeate and and shape real world events but i also really do think that there is some extent to which there's kind of like maybe in the last just like couple years some real pushback on some of that that i personally hadn't really seen happening before and i think that's like partially i i, I started really noticing it at first in the bernie sanders campaign and then continuing through the George Floyd uprising where people were really willing to like publicly, I think that before that time, what I always experienced was people coming up to me after meetings, like in like kind of non-public spaces and being like the left crazy, you know, like what, you know, like, Whoa, that, that was weird. Right. But not really being willing to publicly push back. Like the moment anybody said anything was oppressive, the moment anybody said like, we're failing to consult X, Y, or Z perspective. And because people are infinitely different from each other, we, we have no foundation for imagining a sort of like shared perspective that we might happen with whatever group I'm identifying that's been socialized differently. You know, people started really like more publicly pushing back on that stuff. And I think that's honestly in part, it's for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think some of it is just like people are getting more desperate and angry and wanting to do concrete things. But also, I would say that the sort of like actual establishment really overplayed their hands with stuff like that. So like these 
these like kind of hyper academic notions of like group differences and stuff like that used to like mostly live in pretty properly radical political spaces, but increasingly like identity politics, like identity politics per se. And like all of these, all of these kind of like, well, whose perspective haven't you consulted, like making politics into the beginning of like a, an anthropologist's ethnography sort of arguments really got like overtly taken on by like democratic, like the democratic party in the United States in their, like in their power machinations. And then, all, you know, and like liberal mayors trying to tell people not to fight the cops and stuff like that. And then even by like the police, you know, like, like even one of the cops talking points at this point is like, is this, does this truly like reflect the black perspective? You know, like we're pretty sure we're in touch with like the leaders of the black community and the monolithic black political perspective is that you shouldn't be like contesting power in this or that way. And so I think people are really just seeing in a, like without having to like argue through where any of the stuff came from or, or, you know, like it's vaster meanings, people are just really seeing that some of these Foucault-esque, Margaret Mead-esque constructions of the world are are used by the people they're sure are the enemy you know and so that i do actually think that's diminishing the power that they have yeah like i i think it's all i like personally i think it's a it's a function of you know we're similar age i'm 43 so i win i'm older than you You're all right 43. all right You're yeah, I win. Yeah, I win. Yeah, good one, Tom. <laughs> the one, the one game you definitely don't want to win, unless you're about twenty and uh, twenty-one in America, and then you can get legally served booze. Eh? But uh, or fourteen in France, uh, <laughs> the infinite plasticity. No, uh, um, but like, I also think it reflects a a resurgent of radical left thought. Yeah, that, like I don't know about. You obviously got into radical politics way before I did. Like I got into radical politics after two thousand eight crisis, but I think that they're like, say for example, like you're doing your podcast now, right? I'm doing mine. I'm actually doing my podcast quite a long time. I'm doing it about eight years, nine years now. When there was only like like one or two podcasts on the internet, there was about a hundred libertarian fucking weird ass podcasts, right. right? Remember that period? There was no left stuff. Totally. We have a period now. It's like in the last eight years, in, in really in the last four or five years, we've seen a massive explosion in not, I don't, I, I think not organized or good radical left politics yet, but we've at least seen a propaganda function develop. And I think the the, the pushback against that type of, you know, abuse of standpoint epistemology and all this is coming i think people are are getting wise to the games that are being played that i i I think were completely dominant these these are basically being used as kind of liberal you know democrat whatever equivalent in other countries organizational methods that people are 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 kind of rebelling against this that at at least if, if anything is happening at least we're starting to get a kind of a propaganda function for radical politics. I I think so. I mean, and I think that one of the sharpest divides, it's interesting because yeah, like, like where I live, it's the democratic party, but you know, it's like they, they really frame all like political decisions and like political interests and like voting blocks and all that 
along all of these demographic lines, except for the one that's actually the most predictive and uh, in that that demographic line is just age, right? Like, and that, I think that's partially, you know, and, and you can see this, like, it's weird. Like the, the links that like liberal corporate media goes to insist that that's not true are, are pretty incredible where they'll do this stuff where they're like, you know, Bernie Sanders is polling well among young white people, but he struggles to connect with black people except for young black people, which of course is another way of saying that he does well with young people, but not with old people, you know, but they, they always want to, they always want to frame it in some other, some other way. But, you know, like one of the, I mean, I think there's a few reasons for that. And you can actually look at, there's this really interesting uh, theoretical framework called structural demographic theory that looks at like big moments of political conflict around the world and in the U S in terms of just like when there were big pulses in uh, like a lot of births, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and it really is a thing where, where like, you know, young people are just inherently more rebellious and they're, they're, more, they're more cognitively flexible. So they're more prone to being like, is this really the way things should work? Should we maybe do things a little bit differently? And they're more willing to engage in confrontations over that. But, but another reason for that is that like, and I think I especially saw this in the Democratic primary that happened here most recently for president was that, you know, like young people don't get their news from, from CNN or whatever. They get their news off the internet. And that was like, it seemed like the sharpest divide that I could find in terms of what people thought about the Democratic presidential primary was just in terms of like, if people were exposed to all of this, like, yeah, this very like burgeoning flourishing scene of like radical left egalitarian anarchist media and propaganda that is coming out right now. And it's like, it's, I think it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I legitimately learn so much from listening to podcasts and reading people's pieces. And like, I, I'm super aware that I'm in, if you're in a different, like, if you do like actually just get your news from, from somewhere else, you, you just don't, you don't see or know this stuff, but the, the younger generations, this is like, this is their information ecosystem. It's rad. I mean, it's just awesome. I love it's it. Brilliant. Like, you know, I've grew up in the middle of nowhere, you know, went to Catholic boarding school, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was exposed to nothing. Right. You know, yeah. Not literally nothing. Didn't know it exist. Would never come across it. These kids now, you know, people follow me on Twitter and that. And I think like they're like 14 and they're arguing about the ins and outs of the differences between Strafin economics and neo Ricardian. And you're like, what what is this? You know, what what is this? I I don't I don't know. Yeah, so in that debate, Chomsky talked about the idea of like scientific research into the if I'm remembering correctly, the scientific research into the nature of humanity, say. Have you followed that research? You know, when they had that debate, social scientists were stuck in a holding pattern that they had been in, I don't know, since the turn of the century-ish or so, where any time that an innate aspect of human behavior perception was discussed, there had to be a big Chomsky versus Foucault-esque theoretical discussion about whether innateness was even you know like whether there was human nature or whatever and can you teach a, like a, a wasp to speak english you know that's <laughs> that's the key question for me i mean exactly and that's and that's like right that's the amazing thing is that 
I think that if we if we talk about you know in terms in like the terms we just discussed, where it's like there's people are always bringing ideological baggage or like fears and desires that they're not really articulating into any given academic framework. I mean, I think that like the ultimate sort of like reflexive fear that people in social sciences were indulging when they were like, there is no human nature. There's just like an infinite degree of, of variability was this idea that, yeah, that, that like describing biology somehow is like placing these really like sharp limits, like saying that X or Y behavior or social dynamic is inevitable, but right. Exactly. I mean, like, how can you just like describing human biology is describing the mechanisms for learning and variation. Right. You know, so it's like, there's been all this fascinating work. So that stopped like that stopped in the nineties ish where it was a thing where you had to have a big social sciences, theoretical debate about innateness every, every time you like involved it at all. And the social sciences just kind of quietly, you know, often when these big scientific debates end, there's, there's no great announcement. There's no, you know, nobody ever says like this camp won and this camp lost, like, but people just kind of started, people just started like incorporating innateness in all of these different disciplines. And so like some of the really interesting work that, that illustrates this point that biology actually describes our capacity for flexibility, as opposed to like describing really sharp limits on what we can do is is all this stuff that involves like homologies between ourselves and other species in response to trauma and adversity and like the notion of like an envelope of stress tolerance. And so the, you know, and so when I say homologies, like I think that a lot of people who aren't as familiar with biological explanations of behavior, when they hear people say like the chimpanzees do this and humans do this, they assume that it's just kind of like, it's mere analogy that we're just kind of saying like, these things are similar and it's all just kind of this like literary process of saying, so like, this is how nature is or whatever. But the gold standard in behavioral sciences is like, if you see for cross species comparisons, if you see like relatively similar behaviors, you want to see similarities in brain activity, similarities in like physiological function, like levels of circulating hormones, neurotransmitters, things like that. And so there's a very like, there's this really interesting like homologous system of trauma response that involves the, the limbic system, the connectivity of the, of the limbic system to the forebrain, a bunch of the HPA axis, a bunch of different like neurotransmitters and hormones, and then just the degree to which um, neural connections are formed, the degree of like synaptogenesis and neurogenesis. So like, traumatic experiences, whether we're talking about elephants or chimpanzees or humans, especially early in life, like actually shape your brain structure, like, you know, like your, your core, like your neurophysiology and just like the actual like absolute amount of gray matter that you have in certain regions is shaped by your early experience. So that, you know, that's a, a really like profound illustration of how much flexibility there is in, in how we really just don't know, you know, that there's no way to like place any limits on the potential range of variation that humans can exhibit. And it's also just like, it's an example of like where science has gotten since the time of these theoretical debates, which I feel like political movements are mostly still 
they're still in kind of like the 20th century as far as like, like, like these debates are still like active and relevant in a way that they just really aren't in science itself. Like you, you won't hear these in like psychology or anthropology or whatever, like really at all in the same way that you could like 50 years ago, but you will hear them in social movements. Sorry, you said that it, sh it shows the, the elasticity, say, of the, yeah. of the human. But I, I would also say that it, it actually would, we should emphasize that it shows the importance of the material conditions in which right. the organism develops. And, you know, for humans, and we look at our sociological uh, reality, it's our class system. So, like, how our material and our class impact on our brain structure which impacts then on our material and our class system and so on you know it's this kind of crazy like a uh, chaotic loop you know i think we we can't underestimate that that's where that's where it gets difficult so like when so when i've listened to your podcast so with that kind of idea in mind when we listen to some of the papers that you quote i'm always skeptical from a kind of a a positivist point of view like as in how you know, it's very difficult, even today, we, when we talk about, say, hunter-gatherer societies, like the hunter-gatherer societies that we look at today in that are in tiny, like, what did you say there was yeah. like 100,000 people left, hunter-gatherers, but they actually live in and probably hunt in areas that are encroached upon by non-hunter-gatherer relations and add stress to their organizational structure, much like we see you say in these elephant populations so it's it's very hard for us this is like you know this is the difficulty personally i think is like that you i agree chomsky is is totally correct you have the ideas of there is a human nature and it is something we should study but to actually get at what the human nature is given we actually exist within our class society or whatever makes even repeatable ones across different say geographical areas hard to know whether they actually are the fundamental element or just an expression of how our brain develops within a given structure i don't know if that makes sense i mean i mean totally and that like that's just like the very like that's the inevitable huge burden and fundamental difficulty of trying to understand what we are is like, like it is absolutely like, I, I mean, all of these, all of these kind of like social constructivist frames of reference and modes of reasoning, you know, they all rely on, on exactly on, on pointing out exactly that on, in, on indicting our perspectives on the basis of like, you know, what we ultimately like kind of don't know about external reality or what we might not be aware of just in terms of our own like value systems and, and preconceptions that we're bringing to bear on the study of anything. And it's absolutely true. Like they're not wrong. You know, I would say that, I would say that like what characterizes those approaches is taking a very valid point, which is like, we don't know, you know, and then like refusing to ever do what I think is the epistemologically necessary thing of, of like very diligently seeking out flaws in your perception and like really like, you know, like assiduously searching for bias, but then at a certain point saying like, with my imperfect knowledge, I'm going to try to form some tentative conclusions. And I, and I'm always going to try to be humble about how certain I am of this, of anything. I think like there's this amazing example that I just came across 
that I, I found really mind blowing, which is that there's this optical illusion that was assumed to be universal. It was assumed to just like be some like characteristic of of like basic human visual perception. And it involves, it's a little hard to describe without a visual representation, but it basically involves two lines that are of equal lengths. And then there's some other lines at right angles. And one of them appears to be shorter than the other, but it's not, it's just the intersecting lines. And so some somebody decided to just take this this illusion and see if it was cross-culturally valid, you know, and, and everybody like so many papers had been written about how this was like a basic aspect of human visual perception. And, and like the assumption was that it was universal. So it turns out that the, the effect of this illusion diminishes with like a decreasing technological intensity in a given society until you get to hunter gatherers, until you get to like, I think... I think they they showed it to the sand people in the Kalahari who are not subject to the illusion at all. And the hypothesis is that we we develop it has something to do with looking at all the right angles that are in our environment. You know, and so that's like I mean that's like that would seem like a fundamental nearly like a, a goddamn platonic form that is in our brains. Totally. And it's not it's not, you know, <laughs> and, and, and like, and, and for industrialized people, it is like, there's literally like, if you study how visual perception works, it's like, there's arrays of cells that are all like lined up and they're looking for lines of a given orientation, you know? So they're like, it, it's like the way that our, it, it actually is in like the literal structure of our brains in these societies. So it's not, it's not like a social construct or whatever, right? It's not, it's not how people would tend to render that as everything is just like a, a function of like socialization and like sort of like narratives that we've inherited from our culture. It's like how this culture has actually shaped our brains, you know? So it's, yeah, I mean. This is going slightly off topic. I just kind of came across a, a paper a few months ago on some French guy and he had, he, he, he worked all his life, you know, he was like 60 or something and he had a low IQ. Like, I think his IQ level was like 75. And they, they kind of thought it was linked when he was a kid. He had some like brain, something happened with his brain. He had some di disorder or something, but they, they thought they had cured it, but actually they hadn't. And inside his brain had started filling with uh, fluid, uh -huh. essentially, and it continued throughout his life. And that where his brain should be, there was no brain. It was full of fluid. And there was only like the outside tissue of his entire brain. was. So when this guy, I think he, he died or they went to give him a brain scan and they saw that literally he, had, he hadn't got any brain. He only had the outside. Stuff. And he, he, he was working as like a janitor in a school or something. And he was perfectly functional, but he had nearly no of the normal brain structure. Everything was just like pure shell. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah. Talking about plasticity, you know, we go from one extreme. We're saying, no, 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 this, we're all, this, you know, <laughs> and then like this, this French dude turns up and say, Foucault's right. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, The Antique Blacks, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. 
Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. Thank you.